I learned a long time ago that if you're going to have difficult conversations with people, the time to do it is left to boom. Once a crisis happens, you cannot build a relationship with someone in the midst of a crisis. You have to do it beforehand. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Army Brigadier General Sean Bagby. General Bagby earned a Doctor of Dental Medicine degree from the University of Pittsburgh, a Master's degree in Healthcare Administration from Baylor University, and a Master's degree in Strategic Studies from the U.S. Army War College. He completed oral and maxillofacial surgery residency training at Martin Luther King Jr. Drew Medical Center in Los Angeles, and fellowship training in OMS Trauma Surgery at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. He is deployed to Southwest Asia where he commanded the 561st Medical Company and Dental Services. He currently serves as the Commanding General of the U.S. Army Regional Health Command Central and as the Chief of the U.S. Army Dental Corps. You can read his full bio at wardocspodcast.com. You are now listening to Part 2 of our Wardocs interview. If you haven't already, we hope you get a chance to listen to Part 1 of this conversation, which is currently available on Wardocs on all major podcast platforms. So when I was in southern Afghanistan, I was a, a small FOB, 700 soldiers with the 10th Mountain Division. And the dentist would come by once a month, first few days. And you had commanded a, a group. You said seven clinics of, of dental clinics around Iraq. Tell us a little bit what it's like to be a dentist who's giving care in those austere environments. What, what happens on a daily basis? It, it depends on where you are, but you take them as they come. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, that's, that deployment experience is what sold me on, on staying in because being in a garrison environment, was, there's all these rules and regulations and all this stuff that it seems like gets in the way of the thing that you really love doing the most, which is taking care of people. And what I found was, and, and most folks I've talked to downrange, most of those dentists love it because it, you have an opportunity to just take care of patients. One of the things that people probably know or would expect is that I lived in a, a big bay with the infantry soldiers. And if their dental care was anything like their personal hygiene, because we were only allowed to have three minute showers, there was a vast need for their dental care. What advice would you give for people that uh, may be caring for people that have hygiene of their dental care that's not quite what we might be expecting in the United States? Well, I'll tell you, the, the thing that we found that makes the biggest difference is making sure that they're dentally cat one before they go. Because we know statistically, there's statistics from Vietnam on that show that if you can get people to class one or two, the, the, that, that first six months, they're usually pretty good. And at the six month part, depending on, on the population you study, it's, it starts to go downhill from there. So the, the key is maintaining their dental health before they deploy. So just tell us briefly what dental category one and two are, because we probably have a lot of people that maybe myself included that don't understand exactly what that is. Yeah. So dental category one means they have no dental needs. So they have, they've had a prophy. Usually cat two means that they've had everything, all their acute needs have been addressed, but they haven't had a cleaning or a prophy or fluoride treatment. And then cat three usually means that they have a dental problem that 
is predicted to cause a problem within six months. I, I think it's six months, but, but typically that's something where if they don't get it taken care of, it might not be a problem today, but in those austere environments you talked about, statistically, they will be a dental emergency. And that's the goal is to minimize any dental emergency on the battlefield for routine care. Yeah. Correct. One of the things being a urologist, people love to hear urology stories. And sometimes it's a discovery zone of you never know what to expect. So as a dentist, when you have the big reveal, when they open their mouth, what is the craziest thing that you ever seen? You're like, I can't believe this. I got to tell somebody. So I once had, so as an oral surgeon, I do facial stuff. So I did an orthognathic surgery one time for a woman who had, she had a really bad underbite. I mean, we moved the maxilla forward almost 10 millimeters, mandible moved back five, and she had a really bad facial deformity starting out. And it's one of those cases where we did the surgery. She looked wonderful after the surgery. I mean, she could have been a model. She came back after the swelling was down. She came back about a month later and she was so upset. I'll never forget this because she went to a family reunion and apparently a lot of her relatives had the same facial deformity and they were making fun of her because now she looks good and she didn't look like the rest of them. And she was there crying saying, can you change it back? I'm like, no, we've broken your bones and moved things around. I'll never forget that. It was like expectation management. So how about, how about in a, in an active duty soldier? What, what this is was the, an active duty soldier? Oh, was. Okay. It was. It was wow. a sergeant first class. She was actually a recruiter. What challenges did you find that you had while in Iraq leading other dentists in the deployed environment? The, the thing that struck me most about the deployment wasn't necessarily the patients. It was I had a lot of young captains who were new to the Army. And the thing that I told all of them before we left was that don't be afraid of the field. Don't be afraid of this experience because you are going to make relationships because you're going to be sequestered in small teams. You're going to go through the storming, norming, conforming, all those phases, and you're going to make friends for life. And there were a few that I had that just could not adjust to military life. They were still stuck on that, you know, I'm a, I'm a dentist and why am I here? And they couldn't make that mental leap to be soldiers. I had one in particular who was just causing all kinds of problems and he was fighting with the OIC of the clinic. And I said, okay, instead of being in this nice air conditioned clinic, I need someone to go cover down on those fobs, like you mentioned, where they don't have dental care. And I'm going to put you on the back of a Chinook and you're going to be a circuit rider. And he kicked and screamed and was like, you're punishing me. This is I'm going to call the IG. And it turned out to be the best experience of his life because he got to see, like we talked about, not just what we do, but what we're for. All right. My, my question is, when you were deployed, did you have a mission to take care of any of the foreign nationals or coalition? And that was one of the things we would see some things that we weren't used to seeing in the United States. How was that from a dental perspective? Yeah. So from a dental perspective, we did treat them and we would treat them because we had a, an agreement where it got dicey and where I had to get involved oftentimes was where, you know, routine dental care, that that's easy. You bring them in as long as you have the right agreement in place, you can treat them. Where it got dicey, and I remember very, very vividly, I was involved in a case where I want to say it was either Polish or Romanian soldier that was referred to the hospital. And I, I happened to see them because I was, you know, volunteering and I didn't agree with the diagnosis. And I said, it's not this. It's, and I know this. I, I teach this, right? You know, you've got the wrong diagnosis and that, that got the ire. I offended <laughs> the referring foreign national physician and their dental team. 
because I felt that their diagnosis was wrong and that the patient was actually had cancer. I said, this is what this looks like. And, and so that, that had to be worked through and ruffling feathers and causing an incident because now you've offended them. And it was, that was a, a little different. What I found interesting about your story about the captain that didn't want to go to the remote location is that, that that very similar situation happened to me. So when I was deployed, the dentist would come by once a month. He would stay for two or three days and we would always roll out the red carpet because there's two surgeons, a CRNA, some nurses, but we were just excited to see another medical provider, another uh, doctor that was coming and we could, you know, sort of enjoy being doctors together. I remember vividly though, the first time he came out, he didn't want to really talk and I could tell he was irritated with being there. And then sure enough, that, that next two or three days, he had procedures lined up every 30 minutes to an hour for 10 hours, line wrapped around the door of people seeking dental care. And then all of a sudden, second visit, third visit, he would show up with a big smile on his face. He was happy to be there. He just, you know, he was so glad that he was going down to this location where we had a lot of interpreters and other people that really needed his services as a dentist. Yeah. So he found a sense of purpose. Was there anything that we didn't ask you that you thought we should have asked you about or that you'd want to talk about? The only thing we didn't talk about was, uh, and, and it's something that's important to me, is about diversity. And it's not, again, not to make a big deal of it, but I'm just, I'm just shocked that I'm the first African-American commander of BAMSI, first African-American you know, general officer in the dental corps. And I think that diversity is important and, and not because not because of a social justice argument, although there's a moral, you know, you could say that there's a moral imperative to, to have a diverse uh, workforce. But you can put that aside because that's not a business reason. There's a doctrine of fairness. And some people will make that argument. I, I don't because, again, it's not a business argument. But I think that we really need to think hard about how we mentor people and, and who we mentor, because our organization, our army, our AMED is made better when people are not artificially excluded from competing. And by that, I mean, there are hard and soft forms of ways that we mentor people that lead to certain outcomes. While it is true, and and again, I think it's, I have loved my career. I have had a wonderful career. I've had a wonderful life. I don't regret any decisions that I've made. I've, I've had a very fulfilling career. But I also know that various times, both in my education, before I came in the Army, And during my time in the Army, I was actively discouraged from taking certain opportunities because someone perceived me as not being ready or because they weren't familiar. Who do we mentor? Who do we pick as mentors or mentees? And a lot of times people tend to pick people who are just like themselves. And so when when your leadership team all looks a certain way and they don't consciously think about going back to what are their biases? What are their heuristics? They're only comfortable around certain people or they only invite certain people to lunch or they only invite certain people, you know, um, to do certain projects. And then those people get noticed. We need to think hard about that because it doesn't do us any good to leave talent on the table. You established the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee at BAMSI as commanding general. Tell us why that's important and what further steps we should be taking in making sure that we do have a diverse, equitable workforce in the military and in medical corps. I think, first off, just recognizing that it's important, because I'll tell you, even starting that committee, there were people on my leadership team in the headquarters who questioned, like, why are we doing this? Why are we talking about this again? And I go back to really acknowledging that it's not just the right thing to do. 
But it's important if we are going to sustain ourselves as a relevant, important organization that's really going to do the best we can and provide the best care, then we have to make sure that everyone has opportunity. Now, it certainly doesn't mean that we accept mediocrity. But my philosophy has always been that people need three things to be successful. They got to work hard. But I'll tell you, the thing that has made me very sensitive to the sense of how people are treated is that I know what it's like to, my father didn't finish fifth grade. I, I can tell you and what it is like to be poor and to be in an environment where people don't respect you. I also know what it's like to be a general officer and have people respect you because of your rank. And I think that we have to have the mindset as leaders that all work has dignity and everyone is deserving of respect because they're human beings and there aren't superior classes of human beings. And just acknowledging that and saying that that's true. Some people, I mean, I, I, it shocks me sometimes some of the things I hear people say, but they don't, they don't really buy into that. But going back to, I think everyone works hard, but a lot of people have worked hard. They bust their butts, but they don't necessarily have the right opportunities, which is the second part. Giving people an opportunity is vitally important. And then the third thing is, once you give them the opportunity, the environment has to support them, not just tolerate them. There are people that just don't get it. Now, granted, things have gotten much, much better. And I said before, I am the beneficiary of having lived in a different time where things are much, much better. But there's still an element out there of people that really do not understand that it's not just about fairness. It's about making sure that we, our institutions are strong because we raise up the best, no matter what they look like, not because we're comfortable with them or they, they look like us or they act like us, but because they're good people. And I think we leave talent on the table when we don't recognize that that, that, that kind of thing is out there. So when a hospital like BAMSI creates a committee such as the DEI committee, what are some of the focuses that those committees have in making a change in a large organization such as that one? So when I left, it was just getting on the ground. And, and my charge to the committee was to come up with some goals and objectives, both short and long term. But what I didn't want them to do was focus on quotas. I said, this is not about making sure that we have quotas. It's, it's about maximizing information, making sure that people have access and, and can understand where they sit. We talked about doing counseling, making sure that people have good mentors, those kinds of things. Because again, it's not about, in my mind, I look at it from a business perspective. Yeah, fairness is all good and all that, but we, we want people, we want effective institutions. So the things we talked about earlier about mentorship, there are people who don't get mentored and don't know what they don't know because they haven't had someone pull them up and say, hey, have you have you thought about doing this? You'd be really good at doing X or I know you want to, but that's this is not your strength. You need to go this way. And it has to be purposeful. I'll just put it that way. So you've been in the Army now well over several decades. What changes have you seen in regards to diversity and equality over that time period of your lengthy career? Well, I think certainly the AMED, I don't know about the line. I think the AMED is much more open now to, I, I think we've had some leaders that, that have gotten it. I think having had our first nurse, Surgeon General, but again, she got a lot of pushback. Having uh, African-American female, she got a lot of put. I, I saw it. I saw it and heard it when I was in, when I was you know at OTSG. So I think things are much more open. I think that there are leaders at the top that get it. I think we still have a long way to go, but I, I am very proud of the way that we collectively have started to look at the issue and say, yeah, we kind of do need 
we kind of do this is important. And, and, and to be honest with you, that's to me the most important thing is to recognize that there's a problem. There are still people out there and there are some in, in my command at BAMC who behind closed doors would tell me this is stupid. Why are we doing this? You're just white male bashing. Have these conversations. And it's like, no, don't you? You don't get it. How do you measure as a commander, as a leader, that you're making a difference in diversity? It's tricky. I think that you have to look at qualitative measures and quantitative measures. Now, again, I, I, I don't believe in quotas. I, I think that that's dangerous. I think, I think you have to look at the quality of people that you're bringing in. What I will tell you, though, is I think qualitatively, if you, if you get a sense of the organization, you kind of know if you're making a difference because people are more willing to speak up. People are more willing to take on assignments. They're more willing to speak. You know when an organization is running well. I'm sure that you've experienced times when you've been in places where you have a potluck and only certain people show up as opposed to you have an organizational event and, and you look around and different people from different divisions are coming together. And, and that's what I look for. The quantitative, you can have check marks and you can have lists all day long, but are you changing culture? And I think what I, what I've tried to do is, is look for culture change. I think one of the most important things that I can do as a leader is, and I tried to do this, do this at HRC, is I never wanted to be viewed as someone who's looking out for a certain group. What I tried to do and, and what I've tried to do in every place that I've been is be the kind of leader that everyone is comfortable talking to, no matter who they are. And, and that nobody feels like favoring one group over another. I think also while you were commander of Bamsey, there were a couple of significant racial issues that arose in the national spotlight. George Floyd jumps to mind as one of those events. Tell us how you as a leader approach those types of problems when you know that it may cause unrecognized bias within the organization that comes to the surface when those national issues arise? That is an excellent question. I will tell you that when that happened, I had people, NCOs, officers, people that reached out to me offline and said, what does this mean for us in the Army? How does this country look at us? What do I do? How do I do this? People wanted to have conversations. Remember I said earlier, one, one of the things you have to do is sometimes just shut up and listen <laughs> and not feel like you have the answers. And what I tried to do was just listen to people, listen to all kinds of people. Um, and I don't mean, and I mean white men, white women, African-American, Asian, because we all have a stake in this. I held a series of listening uh, meetings where I brought various groups together of different ranks. And we just talked about how people were feeling. The other thing that I tried to do, and, and, and it was indirect, but it paid dividends was when I came to BAMC, and it's kind of the question you asked about how do you get physicians to on your side, is that I made sure that when I when I took command, I said, I need to talk, I need to have a forum where I can talk to different groups of people, different stakeholders. And so, for example, I had a forum every Thursday where I would talk to a different residency program. So I was able to hit all, all the GME programs separately and just have a conversation about leadership or hear what was on their mind. One morning a week, I would have a breakfast with the CG that was focused primarily on frontline workers, GS5 MSAs, our our second lieutenant, first lieutenant nurses on the ward, our ward masters, our, our young specs, the spec fours that are walking the halls, our Army and Air Force, and our junior, uh, junior civilians. And I would have a breakfast with them and just talk about whatever was on their mind. I would walk around to the wards. I, I used to go on trauma rounds because, not because I, I didn't have any input, but I wanted to see the nature and character of the conversations that were happening is 
the physician, this is the trauma physician doing all the talking? Is does the PA have a, you know, are they comfortable speaking up? Is the nurse comfortable speaking up and getting a sense of the culture? And the reason I did this was because I learned a long time ago that if you're going to have difficult conversations with people, the time to do it is left to boom. Once a crisis happens, you cannot build a relationship with someone in the midst of a crisis. You have to do it beforehand. And so I found it much easier when those incidents happened to be able to reach out to people one-on-one as I walked around the hospital and just ask how they were feeling. Actually, people were so comfortable with me and they, they were so used to talking to me that it wasn't a big deal. They, they were more than willing to share how they were feeling. And I don't just mean people of color. I, I had everyone would say, you know, I, I know that this is wrong, but I feel like people are being blamed. And I'd say, well, how does that feel? How does it feel as a white man? How do you feel? And, and I think too often um, we forget that everyone has a stake in it. And so I've, I've always tried to be the kind of leader who meets everyone where they are. So take us through the initial moments when you have a group of people that are diverse and you're going to approach a very difficult topic of conversation. How do you go about starting that dialogue, particularly if you're someone in leadership over those that are in the group? Yeah, so that's a great question. And normally I try to have a facilitator, someone who is of similar rank as the people in the room and let them facilitate, and I try to shut up. Now, if the conversation's not moving, I may ask a leading question, but generally speaking, what I want is for people to tell their story. There have been, and there are times when I'm asked a question, or if it starts getting out of hand, I may redirect it, but generally speaking, I, I try to be a good host and not and not necessarily guide the conversation, but but just provide left and right limits so that and ground rules so that we say, hey, one person speaking at a time, and then we're going to respect each other and we're in a safe space and you can speak your mind, but there's nothing off limits here. And I try to be the, the, the person who sets the limits, but then I try to be hands off and let the conversation naturally unfold. Yeah, I think nothing will squash a, a natural conversation than the general officer providing his opinion and then asking for theirs. Well, we know you're a busy guy and appreciate the time, so it won't won't keep you forever. But you know, thanks again for talking to us. No, thank you. And I really appreciate what you all are doing. And thank you for your service. And, and thanks for being part of Army Medicine and Military Health. I, I'm really, when I say this, I am really proud to know both of you. What you're doing here is, is tremendous. I'm retiring this year. I got my retirement orders last week. And so I'm in this mode now where I'm kind of reflecting. And this is perfect opportunity for me to reflect on what has my career meant and what do I do next? You know, and, and like I said earlier, one of the things that I've always been proud about is that I've never hung my hat on a rank or a title or a degree. But what I really have enjoyed about my career is just the opportunity to serve with, engage with people and be who I am in the context of, of this job, this series of jobs that I've had that really haven't felt like work. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's really what kind of prompted this whole War Docs thing is just being in the system so long and talking and working with, working for so many great people, hearing great stories, doing wonderful things. Just wanted to, you know, have to a chance to preserve that. So thanks for being a part. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.